Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with its false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." This ends the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of God. Well, again, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. And by way of reminder, uh, the book of Revelation is characterized by three literary styles, very important in properly understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation. Number one is that it's a literal epistle. That means it's a literal letter like every other letter in the New Testament written to a particular audience to address their real-life situation in their day and the imminent circumstances that they faced. Uh, That is to say that the revelation can't mean something to us that was never intended for them to mean. Amen? Number two, Revelation is a prophecy, both foretelling of the future and foretelling the very word of God, declaring his word. And thirdly, um, it's a genre of literature known as apocalyptic um, that seeks to communicate symbolically, symbolically. Apocalyptic language, apocalyptic literature is like poetry. Um, It's evocative language, it's suggestive, it's reminiscent, calling to mind here um, certain images that have been previously communicated, um, and in the case of Revelation, those are images established in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, as we all know by now, hopefully, many Christians come to this book with misconstrued pre- suppositions that have been formed by uh, popular teachings of the day, popular teachings of the last few decades, causing much confusion and even a great deal um, of anxiety for many people. 
Uh, many American Christians who've listened to uh, premillennial dispensational eschatology have heard the cry of the apocalyptic wolf far too many times. You know, predictions of a, of a stealthy taking away of the church. That is what is taught as a secret rapture of the church. That's not found in Scripture. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. Uh, the taking up of God's people, or what's known as the rapture of the church, is an unmistakable, loud event that coincides with the second coming. Which means that the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord are the same day. They're not separated by seven years of great tribulation. We looked at that in the scripture. Uh, Many people have adopted in our day um, the fictional formulas um, that are touted today that actually become their eschatology. Many of these fictional series and so on. Um, the, we, we, we see what's known as the product of uh, uh, newspaper hermeneutics. Interpreting the Bible by way of what's going on in the news. It creates all kinds of hysteria and it leads to much of the kooky claims in the teachings of our day um, where you view revelation in chronological order that follows a secret rapture followed by a seven-year tribulation, followed by a 1,000 literal year millennium where Jesus literally rules from literal Jerusalem on a literal throne there in the Holy Land. But we have to remember, again, Revelation is symbolic. It is not given in chronological order, uh, but it it's, comes in the form of recapitulation showing us complementary visions, complementary visions like a kaleidoscope, not a telescope, but a kaleidoscope, Uh, numerous visions of the final battle, the final day, where God avenges the blood of his people, where he preserves his people with an eternal sealing and destroys those who bear the mark of the beast. We've also learned that the mark of the beast is not a literal mark, it's a symbolic It's just as symbolic as those who are sealed with the seal of God. They have the mark of God on their forehead. You looked in the mirror this morning, you didn't see anything different. It's symbolic. Mark of the beast is symbolic. So the true apocalyptic event in the book of Revelation is shown shown to us by way of seven concluding visions with the phrase we see over and over again, then I saw. Then I saw. Now, this final battle, as we've learned, is not a military, literal military battle. We have seen that the final battle of history includes the destruction of the political, cultural, religious systems of the world, the beast, the false prophet, the great prostitute who peddles materialistic worship, idolatry. We've looked at their ultimate defeat, the destruction of the ungodly who refused to follow Jesus Christ. We've seen this scene over and over again. They're all ultimately conquered, and it's not by military might, but they're destroyed with God's word. 
his very word. Judgment is meted out upon all who have ever lived, the scripture says, both small and great. We concluded last time with the glorious beatitude of chapter 19, verse 9. Blessed, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And who's invited to that glorious feast, beloved? But those who've been called by God. They've heard his voice. They follow the Lamb of God. They've been transformed by the Spirit of God. They have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sin, receiving the glorious gift of salvation. You're in Christ this morning. That's where you will be. Amen? That's the supper I'm waiting for. They're clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, the Scripture says. And they're seated at the table of the Lamb, a glorious feast. Now, in contrast to that feast is another feast, another supper, a gruesome buffet. And I just read it. Verse 17, there's another dinner invitation. Notice, then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He hearkens, notice, he cries out, to all the birds that fly high, to gather for the great supper of who? Of God. Okay, he's the host of this meal. He's the one who provides this supper, and the menu, if you notice, is verse 13. Or, uh, wait a minute, where am I? 18. The flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. Five times you read the word flesh. And actually, flesh is in the plural, fleshes, as in pieces and parts. Again, this is not literal. This is symbolic. It's, it's like the, uh, the imagery of the lake of fire. Okay, you think about that. How can there be outer darkness? How can you be cast out into outer darkness and there be a lake of fire that when, it, when fire exists, it produces light? So again, the lake of fire, outer darkness, are also symbolic, but this is a very important principle. The symbolism that we find in apocalyptic literature is always more severe than the imagery being used. The lake of fire is pretty, it's a devastating picture. To be cast into outer darkness is a frightening picture. So think about how much worse hell is than it is described in the scriptures. Think about how much greater the marriage supper of the feast, the marriage supper of the lamb will be, than it is described in scripture. If you notice the dinner call here isn't to sparrows or doves, it's not, you know, to robins or parakeets here. The call of these birds are the kind of birds that thrive on the flesh of their dead, on dead victims. Predators, scavenger birds like vultures and condors, you know, eagles. Birds that fly high, birds that fly at the zenith point of the sky and they just soar and they look. 
And if you look back at chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, notice another angel cried out who was also, who also rather illumined the earth by the radiant glory of God, the glory that this angel reflects, announcing the fall of Babylon, indicating its desolation and the fact that it had become, notice, the habitation for every what? Unclean bird. The idea being scavenger birds. So these birds that soar rightly read, if you will, the signs of imminent death. That's, that's the apocalyptic imagery here being conveyed. And that's pictured here as, as mass human carnage. So this is an extended invitation from an angel standing in the sun where he's seen by all, serving the almighty creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all judgment has been given by the Father. So this mighty angel stands as as a herald of ultimate final victory, reminding us, and this is key for the message later this morning as well, this reminds us that the God who saves his people is also the God who smites his enemies. That's the picture you're going to see in the Exodus. The God who saves his people is the God who must smite his enemies. What do we hear today? How could a loving God send anyone to hell? See, the topic here is a topic that nobody wants to touch today. How can a loving God meet out such egregious judgment? How can God, who is loving, provide such shocking, frightful, unmitigated wrath with imagery like this? That's the pride of man today. You're going to talk about it on a Sunday morning? You bet I am. We preach the whole counsel of God here. It's just so awkward. It's incredibly negative. Talk about politically incorrect. Right? How often do you hear people say, hey, let's have a Bible study. Here's a list of the books of the Bible or topics that are, are proposed to discuss And it's very rare anyone ever suggests that, you know, hey, let's take a deeper look at the just wrath of God and hell. (laughs) How often do you hear people say today, you know what, I'm tired of all this hellfire and brimstone preaching. You know why you don't hear it today? Because there ain't none today. Hardly. You know, hell has become a subject for which... Most pulpits are silent because the men who stand behind them are spineless. That's a problem. You'll never understand the love of God in Christ Jesus until you understand the wrath of God against sin, ever. You can't understand the cross. So, we were reminded last time, um, through the scene of of verses 1 through 3, of a rejoicing in heaven. Okay, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Did I say 18? A rejoicing in heaven over the just final punishment of God. Notice, hallelujah, salvation and glory belong 
to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, as the smoke arises from her forever and ever. That's why they cry out. So we asked the question last time, you know, why do so many Christians have difficulty rejoicing over God's just punishment? And we concluded that so many Christians have a problem with it. They don't want to hear about it or they just straight up refuse to talk about it. And the answer that they have the problem with it is because their preoccupation with God's judgment is entirely wrapped up with the suffering that it inflicts. Rather than the holy character of God and the just retribution it represents. See, we get messed up in our thinking. We think about poor little man who raises his fist to God. And at the least his fist, if you get the picture. Instead of a righteous, holy God. You know, the only reason we know about hell is because God has revealed it to us. The only reason that hell is sensible is because our God is sensible. Amen? And it clearly exposes the sin of idolatry, as we will see. That the stench of Exodus represents the love of idolatry. Our own nation is filled with idolaters, amen? And if we aren't careful as God's people, can also become idolaters. Thus the warning of Revelation 18.4. To God's people, come out from among her, my people. The Babylonian whore, come out from among her. What are the most subtle idols that exist? Idols of the mind. Idols of the mind. That is... Concepts of God that are not biblical. It's the people who say, I say God's like this. Well, to me, my God is like this. Your God doesn't line up with the word of God. Therefore, you've just created an idol. The God you talk about doesn't exist. I've dealt with people like this over the years. People that have actually come to this church who didn't last too long. We see to it that they either repent of their thinking or hope that they don't last too long. They, they have a, a tendency to embrace uh, what they find meaningful or what they feel is meaningful with regard to this God. And most of what they believe isn't true or it's half true. It's like a clock that's broken. It's correct twice a day, and that's it. So many of them prefer the lie over the truth, which shows us that idolatry can exist within the circle of the very people of God. Thus the call come out from among her. Amen? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Same God. So the one who defines himself in Scripture is also the one who defines his creatures, many of whom refuse to see God 
as divine warrior. And I quote Dennis Johnson from Triumph of the Lamb. Quote, Such a presentation of a divine warrior full of wrath and vengeance against those who disregard his authority is offensive to many today. How can such an image be made winsome to people attracted more by tolerant love than strict justice? Scripture, however, paints a realistic picture of the moral structure of the universe. Despite the preferences of naive wishful thinkers, at the cosmic level, there can be no true mercy, no genuine redemption apart from justice. Redemption for those who are God's friends by grace, entails vengeance on those who stubbornly persist as God's enemies, end quote. Now, those naive wishful thinkers attempt to shape God like Plato. According to their own fixed ideologies, and they think that God must act according to their view of justice and wrath and mercy. That's an idol. They they want a God who sits as a gray-haired, heavenly grandfather who just wants all the little grandchildren to get along. He sits here like this. That, of course is the result of human conceit, not a biblical exegete. Because he's not the God of Scripture. Now, that wasn't even a sidetrack. That's just the fact. Okay, man? Okay, now, Scripture explains three offices perfectly fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophet, priest, king. As prophet, he speaks for God as God, revealing the Father to us as the Word himself became flesh. As priest, he accomplished for us the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is the great high priest who stands as our mediator, mediator of a new covenant, made in his own blood, forever standing and interceding for us. Glory to God. Amen. He also has fulfilled the office of king. Jesus rules in such a way as to not allow sin to reign over his people anymore because he reigns over his people. He's delivered us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And then when we go home to be with him, we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. Your own sin. My own sin. I can't await for the great escape. As I've told you, I get tired of myself. So he is also the ruler of kings on earth. He is the ruler. He is the omnipotent potentate. Amen? He is the true king. And he rules with perfect justice and equity. Unfortunately, I fear that most Christians, although they sing and say Jesus is king, have a very lame and tame view of what it means for Jesus to be king, and they strip him of his potency. But with Jesus, true potency is put back into potentate. 
Amen? In Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, we read, this is where God warns covenant breakers. He says, vengeance is mine, I will what? I will repay. Same chapter, verse 41. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. I will pay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. So here in the final chapters of Revelation, John is given a look at that terrible day when God's long-suffering mercies toward his rebellious creatures... All of those in Mago Dei, every human being is made in the image of God, and those made in the image of God who rebel against the Creator, the one and only God, will be devoured. That's what we see. How do you get out of this? How do these preachers get around this? It's quite simple. You just don't preach it. That's how you get around it. Now, beginning in verse 11... John sees here yet another vision. This time Christ appears ready to wage war upon all the enemies of God who have been deceived by the beast and the false prophet. So here's Jesus coming on a horse. His clothes, notice, his clothes covered with the blood of his enemies. Here Jesus comes and he is not smiling. Amen? Jesus said, my will is to do the will of my Father, which tells us, beloved, there is no distinction between the character and person of the Father and the character and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any theology that presents Yahweh of the Old Testament is ven- as vengeful and judgmental in contrast to sweet, loving, non-judgmental Jesus doesn't understand God. And they've never read this text. They don't understand his holiness. They have no idea what happened in Eden. They don't understand the depth of human depravity, and they certainly don't understand the wickedness of their own heart. And they can't possibly understand how gracious the Father is in sending his Son for sinners. From the beginning of time, men have been usurpers of God's glory, guilty of infinite treason. And here he is to wage war on those who remain his enemies, pouring out his wrath. Now, much of the imagery described here in chapter 19 Um, also describes the Lord back in chapter 1 of the Revelation. You can read that on your own time. So the same Jesus who appeared to John in the vision, writing down, as he does, exactly what he's told to write down by this Jesus, that is the infallible, inerrant word of God, is here shown to be the agent of God's wrath upon sin. Same Jesus, same chapter 1, chapter 16. And there's no text that more clearly defines that for us than this one. Verse 11, another vision. Then I saw, okay, after all this other stuff, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes what? War. Now, every Christian knows that Jesus is coming a second time, right? 
Hebrews 9.27, we read, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, but that's not all. We know here, I mean, have you ever heard it preached that Jesus is coming to judge, Jesus is coming again to make war? No, you haven't heard that preached. I'll preach it. Jesus is coming again to make war. So heaven is opened up, an army's coming, and the one leading the army has transparent vision. Notice verse 12. His eyes, they're like a flame of fire. (laughs) Okay, this metaphor calls to mind God's role of just, as the just divine judge. Remember back in Revelation 2, when Jesus addresses the church at Thyatira? He said, this is, the, this is the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Okay, the church of Thyatira, uh, the context there is that the Lord was revealing the true spiritual condition of the ungodly who claim to be members of his church. And he sees right through it. Eyes of fire. So his translucent vision exposes the church at Thyatira, or those members in it, whose allegiance results in their judgment. Their allegiance was not to God by way of the Son. It was elsewhere. So this here, this imagery reveals for us, reminds us that nothing escapes the see-through vision of Jesus Christ who judges the inmost thoughts of man, of the human heart. Again, Dennis Johnson, quote, none can hide from his heart-piercing gaze, end quote. And if you notice here, Jesus does not judge based on outward appearance, as we so often judge by way of outward appearance. He sees through it all. So, fiery eyes, like flames of fire. Furthermore, verse 12, John says, um, on his head are many diadems. In other words, one crown will not do for this sovereign king. On his his head are many crowns. Okay, reminding us that our Lord Jesus Christ possesses infinite authority and dominion. And here, let us not forget, He exposes the deception of Satan. Now, you remember the dragon had seven diadems? The dragon of old, that's Satan, had seven crowns pretending to rule the world. He's an imitator. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer. And remember, the beast's authority was given over ten nations. Okay? Uh, numbers that symbolize full and complete authority. So here they're revealed. These are imposters exposed for what they are as Jesus' authority, the true king of kings, exposes them. And this king rules without limitation or affectation. This king. That is without pretension. 
This is no show. This is no facade. This is no mere posture like Satan. He is the true worldwide potentate. He is the true universal royal ruler. And he's here now to mete out justice. Notice also in verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Remember, also at, the, at the church of Pergamum, also Revelation chapter 2, he, Jesus promised those who conquer to the end, in other words, true believers who will conquer to the end, will be given a name no one knows except he who receives it. That is, you will know and he will know, because he's sovereign, he knows all. Okay, but when he comes, he comes with a name only he knows. This is a name you do not want to know. This is a name I do not want to know. This is a name we do not want to know because it will be a name that will be disclosed to his enemies on that day. Listen to Isaiah 62.1. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall, shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Friends, do you remember back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, when God spoke to Moses and he said, I am Yahweh, I am that I am, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, as we studied that, we know very well that God is not saying there that that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never heard the sound of Yahweh. Because Abraham addressed him as Yahweh. What God is saying here is that it's not the sound of the name that's being given for the first time to Moses. No, but it's the full significance of the name that he's about to see. And that the people of Israel are about to see by way of signs of judgment. Which we'll get a taste of this morning later on, if you hang out. So Israel at that point had no idea as to the glorious, powerful, and faithful God that he truly is. That the nature of that name is about ready to be put on display. So here is G.K. Beale writes, quote, presumably the idea is that God's character will not be fully demonstrated and revealed until the end of history when he, is, when he has executed justice to its fullest extent. You don't want to know that name. You'll never taste it. You'll never see the significance as to that facet of his name, as far as it being poured out upon you, because it was poured out upon Jesus in place of you. Amen? Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So the Jesus who's coming to exact the judgment of his father is a Jesus, the Jesus, who is coming with garments stained with blood previewing the defeat of all his enemies. These are soaked garments. 
Because, notice, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Verse 15. Okay, who is Revelation written to? The church, the seven churches. Okay, it's, it's written to us to this day. It wasn't written to us, it was written for us. Amen, beloved? It was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, but it's written for us. And he himself here has, was, bloodied, <clears throat> was bloodied on a Roman cross for us. And he comes again with clothes stained with blood, previewing the wrath of a trodden, trampled, crushed stone winepress. There's imagery for you. He is the Logos. He is the Word of God. Amen? Listen to Isaiah 63. Again, this imagery takes us back to the Old Testament. Who is this who comes from Edom, whose color was? Red. In in crimsoned garments from Bozra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is... Your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Notice when Jesus Christ returns, he doesn't come alone. The hosts of heaven follow after him, wearing the garments given to them by their leader. And notice, too, that these soldiers do not fight the great battle. They accompany him, but it's he who slays the wicked. He strikes the nations with the rod of iron. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We saw this back in chapter 1. This is judgment coming from the mouth of the Savior. Is it a literal sword coming out of his mouth? No. This is all symbolic. The sword symbolizes the very word of God. He is the word. He is Logos. Notice there's no dullness on it. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it comes to exact justice. It comes to strike down the nations. Verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Say all the nations, friends, all the nations will be pressed in this stone winepress under the wrath of his fury. Any and all outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. Their blood will be shed. That's the imagery. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, as ancient kings would ride in um, on their charger, on their stallion, his thigh would be most visible to his enemies. So as he rode up alongside of his enemies, the king's signia would be very visible. Conqueror, you have been conquered. 
the king would raise his hand and his sword in victory. And they knew who it was. The enemies knew who the conquering king was. No mistake about it. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And this king has his angel call out to all those scavenger birds, to this great supper of God, this victory feast, to eat the flesh of kings. The king of kings calls him, or his angel does, to eat the flesh of kings, to eat the flesh of captains, of mighty men, flesh of horses, and their riders, along with every sinful human being, great and small, who never comes to Jesus Christ for salvation, but remains a rebel of this monarch. That's the picture. Verse 20. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown in alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. All of this, friends, is royal imagery. This is the king. Royal imagery that serves to remind us that God will demonstrate his holiness. He will vindicate his name. He will satisfy his righteousness. And he will pour out his wrath on scoffers of all time, deniers of all time, enemies of the cross, persecutors of his people who attacked and rejected his church. The flesh will be gorged of those who perverted his gospel, twisted his scripture. It'll be the devil and the beast, the false prophet, destroyed along with all who followed their lies. A horrific picture right here given to us. Don't miss this. A horrific picture given to us by the grace and mercy of God. So we'll know it, and so that we'll fear it. And for those in Christ, we actually fear him with awe and reverence because he's holy, just, merciful, and loving. So this Jesus who reigns now as king and who will reign forevermore as king has two suppers, two banquets, two meals, and everyone who's ever breathed air will be at one of those two dinner parties. Amen? May we praise God for the salvation we have through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen.